65. And we'll get going here in a second. We're going to start a simultaneous broadcast on Facebook. We've all become uh, technical professionals here in, in the age of uh, Zoom. Good. Well, <laughs> when it works, it's good. Um, we were doing a conversation with uh, a uh, a doctor who was, let's see, at a um, refugee center in Poland, a, a younger person, and she was kind of surprised that I knew how to do Zoom <laughs> at my advanced age. How nice. <laughs> Okay, well, we'll get going here in just a second. One, two, three, four, five, six. Welcome to the Tennessee World Affairs Council's Distinguished Speaker Program and Happy International Women's Day. I'm your host, Patrick Ryan. Today, we have the pleasure of talking with Bayan Sami Abdul Rahman, the representative of the Kurdistan Regional Government to the United States and a great friend of Nashville and the World Affairs Council. Uh, we've been to have her speak here in Nashville, where there is one of the largest Kurdish communities outside of the Middle East. Our council is also happy to have been invited to bring our student groups visiting Washington to the KRG office, where she and her staff have taken time from their busy schedules to talk with them about Kurdistan and the US-KRG relationship. Before we start our program today, allow me to thank our sponsors and corporate members who along with you members make these programs possible. Thanks to the Belmont University Center for Global Citizenship, the National Area Chamber of Commerce, the University of Tennessee Center for Global Engagement, Pinnacle Financial Partners, Amazon and Southwest Airlines. I invite interested potential partners to contact me for information about supporting global literacy in our community. Likewise, we thank the many members and donors to the World Affairs Council. You can learn more about member benefits and join or make a gift at tnwac.org. One last housekeeping reminder, we thank you for joining us today. I encourage you to take advantage of this live format Please start with your questions as soon as we get going, and please put them in the Q&A tab on the Zoom screen. Bayan Sami Abdul-Rahman is the Kurdistan Regional Government KRG representative to the United States of America. From her office in Washington, D.C., she works to strengthen ties between Kurdistan and the United States, advocating her government's position on a wide array of political, security, humanitarian, economic, and cultural matters and promoting coordination and partnership. Prior to her appointment in 2015, Ms. Abdul Rahman was the High Representative to the United Kingdom. She was elected to the Leadership Council of the Kurdistan Democratic Party in 2010. Before her career in public service, Ms. Abdul Rahman worked as a journalist for 17 years. She began her career on local newspapers in London and won the Observer Newspapers Farzad Bazov Memorial Prize in 1993 which led her to work at The Observer and later at The Financial Times. She worked for the FT in Britain and Japan. Her late father, Sami Abdul Rahman, was a veteran of the Kurdish freedom movement, joining the Kurdistan Democratic Party in 1963 and playing a critical leadership role in the Kurdish and Iraqi opposition to Saddam Hussein's regime. Ms. Abdul Rahman was born in Baghdad. Her family briefly lived in Iran in the mid 1970s before moving to Britain. She's a graduate of London University. Representative Abdul Rahman, thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. May we start with uh, the, some background and context about uh, the, the Iraqi Kurds and the Kurdistan regional government for those who may not follow Middle East history or developments in the region uh, closely. There's much to learn about the long and storied history of the Kurdish people, but for today, can you help us with the modern history of the Kurdish people in Iraq 
for the formation of the KRG and how the United States became involved in that story? Yes, absolutely. Thank you again, Patrick, for having me. And thank you to everyone at the world, at the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Tennessee, especially Nashville, are very dear to our hearts. Um, absolutely, I can talk a little bit about our recent history and where our strong partnership with the United States began. So just for those who maybe don't have as much background information on Kurdistan, uh, Kurdistan is actually divided between four countries, Iran, Iraq, Turkey, and Syria. The Kurdistan regional government, which I represent in the United States, uh, administers the Kurdistan region in Iraq. So my comments today will be about Iraqi Kurdistan, unless I say otherwise. So uh, about 100 years ago, just after the First World War, uh, the breakup of the Ottoman Empire took place and new countries came into being in the Middle East. One of them was Iraq and part of Kurdistan became joined to Iraq and that's the Kurdistan region. Unfortunately, Iraq has not been a stable country from its beginning. It's had revolutions, coup d'etats and so on. And then of course, from the 1960s all the way to 2003, it was ruled by the fascist Ba'athist party, the party of Saddam Hussein, who was a brutal dictator, uh, killing all the peoples of Iraq, but especially the Kurds, but of course others as well, ruling with an iron fist, declaring war on his neighbors, Iran and later Kuwait, and also declaring war on his own people. He used chemical weapons against the people of Kurdistan repeatedly, hundreds of times, most famously or notoriously against the people of Halabja. And in fact, next week, March 16th, is the 35th anniversary of the chemical bombardment of Halabja, where 5,000 people, innocent men, women, and children were killed by chemical bombs. So that's the brief history of Iraq up to the 1980s, late 80s. And, and the genocide was brutal. I, I can go into great detail, but thousands of villages were destroyed. The economy was absolutely broken uh, and so on. Then in 1990s, Saddam Hussein decided to invade Kuwait. And as I'm sure many of you know, the United States led an international coalition to liberate Kuwait. As the liberation took place, there was an uprising in Iraq, in southern Iraq and in the Kurdistan region against Saddam. Unfortunately, Saddam was able to use helicopter gunships and other weapons to brutally suppress the uprising in the south and also in the Kurdish area in, north, in, uh, in the northern part of Iraq. Don't forget, this is early 1991, the spring of 91, just a couple of years, a few years after the chemical bombardment of Halabja, after 4,500 villages had been destroyed. So the people of Kurdistan expected Saddam to use chemical weapons again, and hundreds of thousands of people fled to try to cross into Turkey and Iran for safety. They were stranded on the mountains, on the border. Hundreds and thousands of people were dying, the elderly and infants in particular. News of this, of course, reverberated around the world. And fortunately for us, the United States, Britain and France launched a humanitarian operation to rescue those refugees who were stranded on the mountainside. And this is really the beginning of that partnership that I spoke of between the people of Kurdistan and the United States. The US-led operation Provide Comfort, the military humanitarian operation to rescue all of those people on the mountainside. The humanitarian operation eventually led to the creation of a no-fly zone that was uh, in place all the way from 1991 to 2003. This no-fly zone provided protection for Kurdistan region and the people of Kurdistan. It allowed us for the first time 
to administer our own area, to start to rebuild. Uh, unfortunately, we also had a civil war, which was a very dark period in our history. But by the late 90s, the civil war was over. We were able to have stability in the Kurdistan region, a form of autonomy that was protected by international partners, but by the leadership of the United States. So that brings us pretty much all the way to 2003. But really, I want to emphasize how important Operation Provide Comfort was in 1991. We all remember what happened. Either people were stranded on the mountainside. I wasn't. I was in, in London. Or if we were abroad, we were lobbying. I was lobbying Downing Street along with many others, of course, and some friends were very successful at the time in lobbying Downing Street. Others here in the United States were lobbying the White House and Congress. So we all remember it, and we all remember the relief that we felt when American helicopters were dropping foods and blankets on, on those people on the mountainside. And that's why I say that really 1991 was the beginning of the partnership that we have with the United States. Can you, can you tell us a little bit more about what it means for uh, the Kurdistan region to be autonomous within the, the nation, the country of Iraq? Absolutely. For us, uh, autonomy within a federal structure in Iraq is vital. Uh, it's vital to our being part of Iraq. As I described, Iraq was under a dictatorship and everybody in Iraq suffered from that, uh, of course, the Kurds as well. So our experience of a centralized form of government is genocide and dictatorship. And that's why after the liberation of Iraq in 2003, <clears throat> excuse me, when a new constitution was drafted and was voted on in a referendum by all the people of Iraq and was ratified, the constitution set out a federal and democratic structure for Iraq. And so within that constitution, the Kurdistan region is recognized as a region. Uh, I would say perhaps it's similar to Scotland within the United Kingdom, similar to Quebec in Canada. For example, Scotland has its own government, its own prime minister, uh, its own parliament. So does Kurdistan. We have a president of the region, we have a prime minister, we have our parliament which passes laws that uh, apply only in the Kurdistan region. We have um, authority over education and so on. And we also have a military force that is legally recognized within the Kurdistan region, the Peshmerga force. However, there are some aspects, some laws that Iraq or the federal government of Iraq has precedence over. That's foreign policy, defense, and uh, some aspects of financial affairs. So other things, mostly the Kurdistan region can have authority within the region. And as I said, for us, that federal structure, that democratic structure and the autonomy that we have is critical. Now, in uh, 2017, there was a referendum within the Kurdistan region on independence. And I understand as many as 92 percent of uh, those voting uh, chose to be uh, independent. Uh, yet uh, the central government in, in Iraq, I believe the Supreme Court, uh, quashed that move and other countries in the region concerned about, as you mentioned, Kurdistan extends across other borders, uh, put pressure on. Can, can you walk us through what happened there? Yes, uh, it's a very important uh, moment in our recent history that for the first time ever, the people of Kurdistan were asked, do you want to be part of Iraq or would you like to be an independent state? And as you said, the vast majority of those who voted said yes. And the turnout was pretty high. It was around 72, 73%. Um, we had said that even if the response to the question is yes, we want independence, 
we will not automatically declare independence. We will discuss this with Baghdad, with the federal government of Iraq. Unfortunately, we never reached that stage because some of the militias in Iraq that frankly were controlled by a neighboring state, they were not controlled by the Iraqi government. Some of the militias uh, decided to attack. There were also some Kurdish actors who allowed the attack to happen. And Baghdad put Kurdistan under, under a kind of a diplomatic and economic siege. And our neighbors, some of our neighbors reacted very negatively. And really Kurdistan uh, became under a, an existential threat. And here we have to thank France and we have to thank President Macron who took a very brave step and a very bold step to invite the then Prime Minister of the Kurdistan region and Deputy Prime Minister to Paris and very publicly held a, a press conference where he said that the Kurdistan region is an important partner. It's important to the stability of all of Iraq. And we need this issue to be settled. This instability, this the political and diplomatic and economic siege of Kurdistan to be over. That was really a very important diplomatic breakthrough. I have to also thank some members of Congress, uh, many members of Congress here in the United States who spoke very vociferously to say that they wanted this instability to be over. And one of those <clears throat> who spoke very loudly was the late Senator John McCain and many others. There were many, many others and we're always very grateful to those friends who spoke out. So unfortunately, our vote for uh, independence at a future date was seen as a threat to so many people in the Middle East. It wasn't welcomed by many of our friends internationally. And so the message for us was loud and clear. Our friends want us to stay as part of Iraq. And we have accepted that so far, but we also ask our friends, including here in Washington, empower us in that case within the framework of Iraq, empower us to ensure that Iraq remains a stable, democratic and federal state where it doesn't matter if you're a Kurd or Arab, if you're a Muslim or a Christian, your voice is heard and you are an equal citizen in the state. Talking about the stability in the region in the, in the last decade, there's been a threat uh, to Kurdistan, uh, to Iraq, uh, to Syria, and uh, an external threat uh, of terrorism to other countries posed by the Islamic State, ISIS. And uh, Kurdistan was uh, initially uh, the epicenter of, of attacks. Uh, many of us remember uh, the specifics of all that, but if you could just give us the, the context of, of what the, uh, the threat was from ISIS and, and how uh, Kurdistan responded uh, with, uh, with its partners. Yes, absolutely. So in, in 2014, ISIS terrorists overran parts of Syria and Iraq. They took over about a third of Iraqi territory. They took over Iraq's second largest city of Mosul. So this was an incredible moment and a shock, a shock that reverberated across Iraq and the Middle East. Uh, we're very, very proud that our military force, the Peshmerga, were able to protect a 1,000 kilometer front line against ISIS and this front line had daily attacks from ISIS and the Peshmerga were outgunned. ISIS had managed to capture heavy and very sophisticated weapons uh, that the Iraqi military had left behind when they disintegrated at that time. These were weapons that had been supplied by the United States to the Iraqi military. And so ISIS were using them to overrun parts of Iraq, to commit genocide against the Yazidis and Christians and Kurds and Shia and others, and they were using them to attack the Peshmerga. So we're very proud that the Peshmerga were able to hold this front line and also eventually liberate many areas of Iraq, of course, 
with the leadership of the coalition of the uh, of the coalition to defeat ISIS with the leadership of the United States. And we're always grateful to the United States for coming to our aid to uh, help us defeat ISIS. Over time, we were able to liberate areas. The Iraqi army was able to regroup with the leadership of the United States and the coalition. We were all able to liberate all of these territories in Iraq. Unfortunately, what's happened though, is that thousands, hundreds of thousands of Yazidis and Christians were displaced by this genocide. Most of them fled to the Kurdistan region. And even today, there are hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of them in camps or living in other accommodation in Kurdistan region. And they are not able to return to their homes, specifically in the Nineveh Plain and in Sinjar, because those areas have been overtaken by militias and those militias will not move, even though the Iraqi prime minister has previously asked them to leave those territories. And this is, um, I think, tragic for all of Iraq and, of course, particularly tragic for the Yazidis and Christians because these are their ancestral homes. This is where their cultural heritage sites are. This is where their ancestors, their loved ones are buried. This is where their homes are. And we need them to be able to return to their homes of origin and to have stability and prosperity. The, uh, the fight against ISIS that the Americans participated in has left uh, a legacy of American cooperation on the military front with Kurdistan and uh, also with uh, the, the larger area of Iraq. And there are uh, continuing to be um, Americans deployed in that area. And from time to time, uh, you, you uh, diplomatically mentioned a, a neighboring country, but uh, the United States has had concerns about uh, attacks from militias backed by Iran and by Iran directly. In the aftermath of uh, uh, the killing of General Soleimani, uh, there was a missile attack directly from, from Iran. Um, there continue to be tensions in Syria. Uh, Americans have been deployed to that area. Can, can you give us kind of the uh, lay of the land as far as American continuing involvement in the region, specifically in Kurdistan? Um, yes, absolutely. Um, today, there are over 2,000 uh, American troops in Iraq. They have a non-combat role. Their role is to advise and assist, and they advise and assist both the Peshmerga and the Iraqi security forces. In the Kurdistan region, they provide training equipping uh, advice on how to reform our Ministry of Peshmerga, our Ministry of Defense, and also uh, continuing the cooperation with us and with the Iraqi security forces on the continuing fight against ISIS. Even though the caliphate has of course been liberated and Iraqi territory is back uh, under Iraqi control, there are still ISIS terrorists and the ideology has never been dealt with. And there is a kind of a no man's land between where the Peshmerga line is and where the Iraqi security forces begin. That no man's land, uh, which is largely in what is called the disputed territories, that's where ISIS has been able to have a foothold. So we all collectively, the US, the coalition, Peshmerga, Iraqi security forces, we all need to remain vigilant against ISIS. If the Peshmerga move back one inch, that inch will be taken by ISIS. So even though there isn't a daily kinetic conflict, there are still ambushes, there, are host there is hostage taking by ISIS and so on. So that uh, conflict, if you like, continues, but at, at a completely different level. But that's why we need the coalition, and especially the US, which leads the coalition, to stay engaged. But as I said, the US involvement now in Iraq is in an advisory, cooperative assistance uh, mode, if you like. But I also want to talk about 
the US presence in Syria, if I may, Patrick, because that sure. also has to do with ISIS. So uh, thank you. And, and so of course, ISIS is also in Syria. Uh, again, many areas in Syria were liberated by Kurdish forces in Syria with the support and cooperation of the US-led coalition. And there are, I believe, eight or 900 American troops in Northeast Syria working with the SDF, the Syrian Democratic Forces, which is led by the Kurdish uh, forces there. We need, again, the US-led co US coalition and the US forces to remain in Syria because that is what backs and supports the SDF against ISIS. And what we have in Northeast Syria are detention camps where there are tens of thousands of ISIS terrorists and their families. They are kept in these camps because again, we don't want them to run rampant and we need the SDF to be able to keep control of the uh, camps, the displacement camps, but also the detention centers where tens of thousands of ISIS fighters are kept or terrorists are kept. So it's very important that we keep an eye on what's happening in Syria as well. And much of the logistical support, the, uh, the base for operations, if you like, is actually from the Kurdistan region in Iraq. So the two are linked together. Although the operations are quite different, in Iraq and Kurdistan region, it's an advisory uh, situation for the US. In Syria, it's something else, but they are linked and both of them need to stay in place. And the reason why I say this is because I think people forget what a threat ISIS remains. Just because there isn't a daily clash and, and we're not hearing the headlines, it doesn't mean that it's time to take our eye off the ball. Let me uh, remind our uh, viewers on YouTube and our podcast listeners uh, that uh, this is the Tennessee World Affairs Council Distinguished Speaker Program. And today we have the pleasure of speaking with uh, Bayan Sami Abdul-Rahman, who is the uh, representative of the Kurdistan Regional Government uh, to the United States based in Washington, D.C. Uh, representative uh, Abdul-Rahman, we have uh, a couple of questions starting to come in. And uh, one of them is uh, from one of our uh, directors uh, at the World Affairs Council, Alan Ramsour, who uh, notices you have two flags over your shoulder there, and uh, he wonders what, uh, what those flags are. Sure, thank you very much. So uh, I'm going to point, this is the flag of Iraq, and this one is the flag of Kurdistan region. And uh, we uh, show both flags because uh, the flag of our state is the Iraqi flag. And of course, I represent the Kurdistan region. So we also hoist the Kurdistan flag. And I would liken it, if I may, to perhaps you, Patrick, or a, a, perhaps an official from the Tennessee government having the flag of the United States and the flag of Tennessee next to it. So it's, it's really something like that. Sure. Alan also asks, uh, uh, our, our president uh, now, Joe Biden, at uh, a time when he was a senator and later as vice president, uh, dissented from the, uh, the position of the U.S. administration concerning the situation in uh, Iraq and thought that after the uh, 2003 uh, invasion and, and uh, the transition there, that uh, Iraq should be uh, split up, that there should be separate parts of, of uh, Iraq. Now, uh, I don't think he's spoken on that question during his presidency, but obviously he's uh, supporting the U.S.-Iraqi relationship. What, what's your uh, view on the position he took then and, and uh, that, that concept that uh, many thought uh, Iraq should be uh, separated? Well, if I... I believe as, uh, then Senator Biden uh, proposed a kind of a federation or confederation, maybe even a separation of uh, the different communities in Iraq, the Kurdish people, the Sunni Arab community and the Shia Arab community. Uh, there are others who have proposed five regions in Iraq, the Kurdistan region, 
a region in uh, central Iraq for the Sunni Arab community, two regions in southern Iraq for the Shia Arab community, and then Baghdad as the capital, which is actually very fast and has a huge population, to be a region by itself. So there are many ideas about federalism in Iraq. And I would also like to remind uh, some of our friends in the Middle East who believe that federalism is alien to the Middle East, that it's a Western concept. Well, a very successful example of federalism in the Middle East is the United Arab Emirates. Each of the Emirates has its own uh, government, its own uh, rules, uh, excuse me, its own powers. And then, of course, it is one country with one flag, with one uh, leader at the same time. So there is a very successful model of federalism in, in the Middle East. And why shouldn't Iraq be the next one with democracy thrown in? Um, going back to now President Joe Biden, we understand from uh, speaking to uh, his staff at the White House, at the National Security Council, that President Biden still cares very much for Kurdistan and, of course, for Iraq. His late son served in Iraq, so I think Iraq and Kurdistan will always be dear to his heart. However, as president, as you said, Patrick, he hasn't really revisited the idea that he proposed when he was senator about federalism or confederalism or even separation in Iraq. Uh, we are told by our friends at the State Department and the White House that the US government this administration wants a strong, unified, democratic federal Iraq with a strong and viable Kurdistan region within that. Well, talking about uh, Kurdistan and Iraq in, in the uh, Middle East, in the greater Middle East, and uh, for sure it's a, it's a rough neighborhood to be in and, and the security challenges uh, are complex. Uh, among those, um, are your neighbor Iran. And uh, Professor Thomas Schwartz from Vanderbilt asks, uh, how do you assess the current political situation in Iran, particularly as regards the situation of protests over the death of an Iranian Kurdish woman who was not wearing her hijab properly? And uh, the, the, the protests continue. And, and uh, you know, we, uh, especially as we consider International Women's Day of acknowledging the achievement, but also the challenges to women around the world. This is certainly foremost in the uh, in the global landscape of, of challenges uh, for women. Uh, so what's, what's your take on what's happening in Iran in that regard? Well, Iran for us is, of course, a very important neighbor. Iran is a regional superpower uh, within the Middle East. Uh, so everybody has to take account of Iran. And for us, it's an important neighbor. Of course, we're very concerned about what happens to the Kurdish people in Iran. We are linked by blood. We are linked by our language, our history, our culture. And there are many families where uh, the husband and wife may be from different parts of uh, Kurdistan. One could be from Kurdistan in Turkey, the other one from Kurdistan in Syria, for example. Um, and what happened to Gina or Mahsa Amini, the young Kurdish woman who, as you said, uh, died uh, after being arrested by the Iranian morality police. This led to a wave of protests across Iran, of course, in Kurdistan of Iran as well. And the protests continued for a very long time. But really, there were protests across the country in Baluchistan and in, in different parts of the country. Um, I think it's important for the Iranian government to really think about why are these protests happening? Uh, often, not just in Iran, in other countries too, foreigners or foreign interference is blamed for discontent and dissent. Uh, sometimes that's true, and especially in the Middle East, there is a huge amount of interference in each other's affairs. But also, I think it's it's important to really take a good close look at why, why are people across the country protesting. Um, we in Kurdistan region, the KRG, the Kurdistan regional government, have not interfered in any way in what's happening in Iran. 
we are very concerned, as I said, what, about what happens in our neighborhood. And I would like to leave it there other than to say that, as you said, Patrick, today is International Women's Day. And I would like to salute uh, the women across the world who have struggled, who have succeeded and continue to struggle and succeed in their everyday endeavors. To be sure. And let's turn to um, another neighbor that you uh, mentioned, uh, Syria, and uh, the, the cross-border situation with uh, Kurdish people in Turkey, Syria, uh, and, and Iraq. Frank Rettenberg uh, says that, uh, asks that if you agree with the Turkish position that the PKK in Turkey and the PYD in Northern Syria are two parts of the same organization. Now it's, it's complicated for Americans to keep track of these various acronyms and uh, borders and, and who's in what territory. But clearly Turkey is a big actor in the, the future of the Kurdish people across various borders. Uh, they've uh, operated uh, uh, militarily against certain groups. Uh, but uh, what do you think about uh, Mr. Rettenberg's uh, question on the relationship between the PKK and, and the PYD in Syria? Uh, well, thank you for that question. And again, Turkey is a regional superpower. It's also, of course, part of NATO. And uh, for us, a very important neighbor and trading partner. Uh, Kurdistan region produces and exports oil, and the oil goes to the international market through Turkey. So for us, Turkey is a very important neighbor. We don't always agree with Ankara on uh, what it says and, and does with regards to the PKK. Um, Turkey and the United States uh, consider Turkey, to, uh, excuse me, consider the PKK to be a terrorist organization. We in the Kurdistan region don't use that wording, but that doesn't mean that we agree with everything that the PKK does. The PKK um, is a Kurdish organization uh, that was established 40 or so years ago, more, more than 40 years ago in Turkey. Um, it did establish a wing in Syria called the PYD. So yes, for us, they are sister organizations. They are part of the same organization. But as I said, Turkey and, and the United States call them terrorists. We do not. Uh, for us, for the KRG, what's important is that the rights of the people of Kurdistan, whether they are in Turkey, Syria, Iran or Iraq, should be recognized. We should be able to speak our language. We should be able to give our children the names that we choose in our language. We should be able to have some administrative and political rights, just as people enjoy uh, across the world. So that's what's really critical for us in the KRG. We have a question from uh, Ann Howard who asks, what are the prospects for economic diversification away from petroleum in the Kurdistan region and what sectors are seeing the most growth? I'd, I'd like to add on uh, a question. If you could describe to us what it's like to, uh, to grow up and, and to live in the Kurdistan region. I think uh, a lot of Americans have, when someone says the Middle East, you know the images that that conjures up uh, in many minds about turmoil and um, the, the pictures uh, that we see in the news. But uh, the Kurdistan region is, is a modern uh, economy, uh, universities and, and schools and uh, uh, shops. And, and tell, tell us about Kurdistan and, and if you could address Ann Howard's question about diversification from petroleum and other economic initiatives. Absolutely. I, uh, both are great questions. So on diversification from oil, uh, currently oil is the biggest source of revenue, both for the Kurdistan region and for Iraq as a whole. Uh, for us in the Kurdistan region, we are aiming to diversify and we've begun the process so that other parts of the economy become stronger. The priorities for our government are agriculture, tourism, and light manufacturing. So why, let, let me just focus on tourism and agriculture. Why are those uh, priorities? And that's really because of the history of Kurdistan. Historically, 
before all of the genocides and the destruction of four and a half thousand villages by the Saddam, by the Ba'athist regime of Saddam Hussein, Kurdistan was really, uh, was a rural society. It was a farming culture. Everybody grew fruits, produce. Uh, farming was our way of life. And Kurdistan used to be the breadbasket of Iraq. So this is why it, we feel it's very natural for our population, for our uh, landscape and, and the resources that we have, that we should return to agriculture and all of the things that go with agriculture to be a key part of our economy. And uh, just to update you, we've been working with the US Chamber of Commerce to take a delegation of American businesses to the Kurdistan region in a couple of months, focusing on agriculture. And we're calling it, or they're calling it, farm to fork. So American companies that are involved in anything to do with farming, with warehousing, refrigeration, all the way to what we eat in a restaurant. Um, so that's on agriculture. Tourism, again, is one of the natural, uh, historically natural areas of our economy that we can expand on. Uh, within Iraq, Kurdistan has pretty much always been a tourist destination. We have a cooler climate, we have waterfalls and mountains. So even though for us, we believe it's very hot in the summer, if you're coming from Southern Iraq, Kurdistan is much cooler. And of course, there are all these wonderful historic sites, biblical sites, and uh, then just plain old nice touristic places to go to, parks, malls, and so on. Uh, going on to your other question about what is daily life like in Kurdistan? I am so glad you asked that, Patrick, because uh, we do tend to focus on national security related questions in, in a lot of the talks that I give, and that's probably my fault. And, and we kind of forget to really talk about the culture, society in Kurdistan. So first of all, I want to say Kurdistan is by majority Kurdish and by majority Sunni Muslim. However, it is a diverse society and we are so proud of that. And we want to promote and protect that as much as possible. So there are Arabs in Kurdistan, there are Yazidis, there are of course Assyrians who go back thousands of years in the region, Turkmen, Chaldeans, Christians, Yazidis. So it's a diverse society. And there are schools that teach in different languages. There are uh, newspapers and so on uh, in different languages. Everyday life in Kurdistan is really just like it is in Tennessee or here in Washington. Uh, kids go to school, parents go about their business. And although we talked a great deal about ISIS and you know, other threats and so on, really everyday life is very normal. My sister lives there, for example, with her children and life is very ordinary. And we are talking to the Sister Cities Board of Nashville about a sister city partnership between Erbil, our capital city, and Nashville, because as you said earlier, Nashville has the single largest Kurdish population in North America. So we're very proud of that. We haven't finalized the sister city partnership, but I hope that we will very soon. Well, that's uh, that's an incredible relationship. And and uh, I'll just throw in a, a personal note here. I was at a conference of the World Affairs Councils and your office was gracious enough to hold uh, an evening reception for some of the conference goers. And everyone on your staff I, I spoke with either had been from Nashville, had lived in Nashville, or had a relative in Nashville. So uh, Nashville and, uh, and your office and your staff, um, we, we hold a, a special place in our hearts here uh, for the work that uh, they're doing. Uh, let me add on to the question about the life in uh, the Kurdistan region. Uh, Patricia uh, Cottrell asked uh, if you could talk a little bit about the status and roles of women in uh, KRG government and society, and she wishes you a happy International Women's Day. 
Well, thank you so much. It's uh, wonderful to know that Judge Patricia Cottrell is in the audience and my warm greetings to her. And, and I know she's on the board of the Sister Cities of Nashville. Um, that's a wonderful question, Patsy, especially today on International Women's Day and happy International Women's Day to you as well. Um, so in the Kurdistan region, uh, our government and our leadership has been very focused on uh, being more inclusive of women and promoting women's rights. And this is something that really began all the way back in 1991 when I said, uh, thanks to the United States and other partners, there was a no-fly zone established and we began a form of self-governance. From the very first parliamentary elections that we had in Kurdistan region in 1992, women were elected to the parliament. And I say that because there are countries in the Middle East where there are no women in parliament or women came into parliament much, much later than that. So I'm very proud that from the very first parliament in Kurdistan, women were there. Now we have a quota for uh, women in parliament. 30% of members must be female. And that forces all of the political parties that run for election to train their members, female members, to include them in decision-making, to give them positions of authority. So I think this quota system, I know there are many who are against it, but the quota system works because it makes it visible for the public in Kurdistan to see women members of parliament. And in fact, the, the, the speaker of parliament is a woman. Her predecessor was also a woman. So we're very proud to have this uh, representation in Parliament. Within the Cabinet, there are also ministers, I think three ministers, who are women. And out of the representatives abroad, the ambassadors, if you like, of Kurdistan abroad, there are two of us, um, myself and, and my colleague in Rome, in Italy, who are women, uh, out of 14 representatives. And I would say generally in society, Kurdish women have many, many more freedoms and much more empowerment than their sisters in many places in the Middle East. You know, I want to be realistic. We are a conservative society. We are in the Middle East. So I'm not comparing this with New York or with Stockholm and Sweden. I'm being realistic and comparing Kurdistan with our neighborhood. And I genuinely believe that women in Kurdistan are more empowered and have many, many more freedoms than our sisters in the neighborhood, but we need to do more. And I'm very proud that our leadership is very committed to that. Uh, Madam Representative, we, uh, you and I spoke before the, the program started about the current atmosphere in Washington. Uh, you know, today uh, it's, it's March 8th and uh, the US Senate is hearing the global threat assessment from our intelligence uh, chiefs. And as one might imagine, um, China is uh, up front with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, occupying a lot of space in the room. Uh, and then there are other issues. Um, and the Middle East has been uh, off the radar, so to speak, for some time. And as, as you and I uh, discussed, that's not always a good thing to not pay attention to what's happening there. So give us a, a, a summary of, of what, you, what you see happening in Washington relative to the Middle East in general and uh, Iraq and Kurdistan in particular. Yes, I think this is such an important point, Patrick. Um, as we were talking earlier, as we said earlier, really the priority for Washington in, for, in terms of foreign policy is the Ukraine-Russia conflict a very close second seems to be China, competition with China, the Taiwan, and, and so on. And then it's domestic affairs. Naturally, the Congress is going to focus on issues that are important to American voters and constituents. And so Iraq and Kurdistan region are not really a priority. We don't see it in the priority list. And I think you will hear that from the ambassadors of many Middle East countries and probably from other countries too, uh, other regions, not just the Middle East. And it's understandable. 
So there's a downside to this, and there is also a very positive note to this. The, the downside is really if you take your eye off the ball in Iraq or the Middle East, somebody else will fill that vacuum. Somebody else will step in. And that's why it's very important for us that the United States remains engaged in Iraq and the Middle East. Even if the priorities have changed to something else, it's important not to forget Kurdistan and Iraq and the whole of the Middle East, because leaving America leaving the Middle East doesn't mean that things will just continue harmoniously. It means that somebody else will step in and they will come in with their agenda, their priorities, which may not be yours and ours. The positive side is that it really means that the situation in Iraq has stabilized and the United States doesn't need to be engaged with combat troops and you know, heavy engagement. And that's an important point. That's a positive point. Just a couple of weeks ago, the foreign minister of Iraq, uh, His Excellency Dr. Fuad Hussein, who is actually Kurdish, but of course he was representing the Iraqi government, he was here in Washington. And in one of his, uh, uh, his speaking engagements, he said, previously when I used to come to Washington, most of my discussions would be about security matters. This time, most of my discussions were on energy and the economy. And he saw that as a positive. But one really crucial thing I should mention, Patrick, just on this issue of how much attention are we getting from Washington? Just yesterday, Secretary Lloyd Austin, the US Secretary of Defense, was in Erbil and he met with the president of the Kurdistan region and also with our former president as well. So uh, just yesterday, we did have a lot of attention from the United States. Well, that's uh, the uh, important points to make that um, we uh, sometimes overlook areas of uh, national interest for the United States at our own peril. Um, as, as you mentioned, uh, there, there are vacuums that are created around the world and certainly uh, an area where uh, Iran is, uh, is a uh, significant actor in the region uh, requires uh, continued American attention. And also the future of Iraq, we have invested very heavily in blood and treasure and in, in stabilizing uh, the country after uh, the 2003 era. Uh, so it's important to uh, continue to uh, to keep an eye on what's happening in the region. We have a, a couple of uh, quick uh, questions to fit in in our hour here, um, Madam Representative, if we could. Uh, Victor Nogura asks about uh, the distribution of oil profits. So this is uh, getting down, drilling, uh, drilling down, not to make a pun, um, uh, into details a little bit, um, between the central government and the uh, uh, Kurdistan regional government. Um, has the KRG successfully built an oil export route to the north? Um, so if, if you could just comment briefly on, on what's happening with uh, the oil products that come out of Kurdistan, the distribution of uh, profits and where the oil goes. Uh, thank you. It's a good question. And before I answer it very briefly, I, I just want to add to what you said, Patrick, about how much the United States has invested in Iraq. And that's why it's important to keep an eye on it. And I would add to that by saying, I believe the Kurdistan region is the success story in Iraq and the United States should be celebrating it and be more proud of it and not be so shy to say that there were some success in it, successes in Iraq. I know people are tired of what are, what are known as the forever wars and so on. Uh, the forever war is finished in Iraq, but it's important the U.S. stays engaged and it's important that the United States celebrates its achievements, in, in this case being the Kurdistan region. With regards to the oil sector and the division of oil revenues, so uh, very, very briefly, I'll talk about the Iraqi constitution, which uh, is set, sets out a federal structure in Iraq, decentralization. And uh, the, the constitution says that new oil fields found in a region, uh, the region has the authority to manage those resources 
in cooperation with the federal government. Where there are old, excuse me, old or existing oil fields, the federal government has the authority to manage those with the cooperation of the region or the province where that oil has been found. So in either case, the federal and the region, regional government or the provincial government are supposed to cooperate, but the management is given to one or the other. Unfortunately, we've had no cooperation between the federal government and the Kurdistan regional government, or very little cooperation, I should say, on oil. It's always been a contentious issue. Many in Baghdad want to have centralized control, which doesn't fit within the federal structure of Iraq. And we want to go by the constitution. We believe we have the authority to manage and export our oil. So today, the Kurdistan region is producing uh, close to 440,000 barrels of oil a day. And much of that is exported through a pipeline that goes through Turkey to the international oil market. And we're very proud at this moment where the international energy market is under scrutiny because of the Russia-Ukraine conflict that Kurdistan is contributing close to half a million barrels of oil a day. We are also producing gas in the Kurdistan region. Currently, the gas is used domestically for electricity. But once the infrastructure is in place, we will be able to export gas as well. And again, this can be part of the international uh, energy market. And in particular, we know that Europe is now looking to diversify its sources of energy and Kurdistan could be part of the solution. So when it comes to revenue sharing, we don't really have a successful mechanism that's working today. Kurdistan is keeping the revenues. Baghdad is not happy about that. We hope that the current prime minister of Iraq, Prime Minister Sudani, working with our government and with our prime minister Barzani, will find a solution and that there will be a way forward out of this. We're, uh, we're close to time and, and I'm gonna ask for any uh, final comments you have in just a second. First, uh, Amy Howard asks, is there anything that they can do, that she can do to support the Erbil Nashville sister city effort? I know that uh, uh, my colleague, uh, Sarah Lingo, the executive director of Sister Cities would welcome an inquiry uh, directly to uh, sister cities about becoming involved in, in any of the various committees there, and especially the, the new one being organized uh, to uh, build a relationship with uh, Erbil. Uh, Frank uh, Rettenberg uh, asks if you'll be traveling to the West Coast anytime. I, uh, I'm not sure where Frank is located, but uh, it sounds like he would like to see you in person somewhere. And I know you have a busy travel schedule. Any West Coast dates on your calendar? Uh Yes, actually, uh, I, I, if I may just look at my calendar while I'm talking, sure, sure. I, am, I am planning to go to, uh, I don't want to get this wrong, I believe it's the University of Berkeley. Um, but anyway, I am planning to be in California in April. If I get the dates in time, I will share them with you. If not, Patrick, I'll, I'll send you a note afterwards. Uh, but yes, I should be in California in April, and I would love to meet with this gentleman or, or with the World Affairs Councils there as well. Okay, Frank, there you go. Maybe Berkeley in, uh, in the coming months. Uh, keep, your, keep your eyes open for, for that. And uh, uh, Madam Abdul-Rakwan, uh, we've uh, greatly appreciated your time today and the, uh, and the terrific points that you've made about the relationship between the United States and the Kurdistan regional government the friendship between uh, the Kurdish people and Americans, and in particular, uh, Nashvillians uh, here who uh, uh, are honored to be the home of so many Kurdish people. Um, it's, it's a great relationship. Are, are there any comments that you'd like to leave us with before we sign off? Yes, I, I'd just like to say hello to Amy Howard, who asked the question about sister cities. Absolutely, we would love for you and anybody else in the Kurdish community or the Nashvillian community to be involved in sister cities. 
But really my, my parting words are to thank you, Patrick, thank the Tennessee World Affairs Council. As I said right at the beginning, Tennessee and especially Nashville are very dear to our hearts and are known by 40, 50 million Kurds around the world. So thank you for this opportunity to spend time with you today. I really enjoyed this and I very much look forward to coming to Tennessee and hopefully seeing some of you in person. Well, we're looking forward to that uh, visit once again. Uh, thank you. Uh, we've been talking with the Kurdistan Regional Government Representative to the United States, uh, Madam uh, Bayan Sami Abdul Rahman from uh, her office in Washington, D.C. And uh, thank you for tuning in today uh, to this program. Again, we invite you to become members of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. That's how we can continue these public service uh, initiatives to help the community understand what's happening in the world. You can visit tnwac.org to become a member or to make a gift. Again, uh, Bayan Sami Abdul Rahman, thank you so much for being with us and uh, best luck to you and, and your efforts in Washington. Thank you, great to be with you. Bye-bye.